Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. We are joined again today by Professor Pinhas Shir, who is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures at Israel Bible Center. We've been talking about one of his new courses, which is part three of Stories of the Jewish Church. And this particular course covers Acts chapters 10 through 15. In previous episodes of this podcast, we talked about the remarkable shift in the story that takes place at Cornelius's house. And then we talked about Paul's first journey into Anatolia, or Asia Minor. And if you missed the last two episodes, I recommend going back and listening to those first. Today, we are talking about only one chapter in the book of Acts, but that one chapter is such a crucial moment for this early Jewish church that has to figure out what to do with all of these Gentiles who believe in God. Acts chapter 15 tells us about a Jerusalem council made up of Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and the Jerusalem leaders of the church, and they gather together to make some decisions about how the church is going to move forward. It is such a stunning chapter, and I think you're really going to like the conversation. So lean in and enjoy. Well, uh, Acts 15 is is kind of a pivotal chapter. Actually, that's where I, I, I end the course because essentially the story after that moment shifts into primarily non-Jewish context. And so since my course is called The Stories of the Jewish Church, you know, it, it makes sense that that's where I would stop because then all of the rest of the development is going to be focused uh, in that area. But But this is a very pivotal chapter because this is where a lot of things get decided and articulated and and really hammered out to whatever degree they were able to deal with it. So who are the players? Uh, essentially, you have um, people from Antioch who get confusing messages. Apparently, some people start telling them oh, they have to become Jews. They have to become circumcised. They have to follow the law of Moses. They basically have to convert, essentially. It's what we call proselyte conversion. And, and that was a very common way of embracing a Jewish path. It was the mainstream stream way. And there were very few people that did that, but there were people who did do that. They embraced the Jewish way of life. And that meant leaving behind their lives and their families and their gods and their ways of worship. And they came with a price usually. Uh, culturally speaking, it was a very difficult transition for people to make because we're talking about a total social disengagement from the network in which you were involved. And now plugging into a brand new network, which is not easy. So everything was built around families and and wealth and land and power and titles. You know, if you start talking about Roman uh, Romans and and you start talking about Greeks, I mean, all these things were hereditary. What family you were from meant meant the whole world 
You know, people don't even think about it today because today we define status based on your success and how much money you make, but that's not how it was back then. It was your family name, it was your nobility, it was your title. It's the land holdings, it's the reputation of the family, and like you couldn't even get into some places if you weren't from the right lineage, let's put it that way. And your lineage determined absolutely everything uh, of what you're going to be able to achieve in life, essentially. They, they were much more rigid in their class divisions in, in, in that time, and that's what we fail to understand because we live in a very multicultural pluralistic society where people can move up and down the ladder, sort of say, depending on their actual success. And a lot of times people are just judged by their achievements. That's not how it was back then. So, you know, the players are people now who are being challenged to change their status. And so the message of Paul, you know, Shaul, he he is completely against that. He does not believe that they need to change the status, but his conviction is theological. He believes that in the end times, non-Jews, Gentiles, will worship alongside of Israel as non-Jews. Why does he believe that? Because he's an apocalyptic Jew. He reads uh, the prophecies. He reads Isaiah. He reads Jeremiah. He reads Zechariah. And he sees the image of non-Jews coming to Jerusalem and worshiping, but not as converts to Judaism, but as non-Jews. And so he says, this is happening right now. We are a part of this process. So we need to stop forcing everyone to become circumcised because they all become circumcised, they become Jews. Of course, they're going to be worshiping uh, the God of Israel because, you know, if you're entering the covenant, now it's your obligation. But what's amazing to him is people choosing to do this willingly, not out of obligation, not because they changed their social status, but because they are making a willful choice to worship God of Israel as they are not out of obligation. And and so that's sort of say the kind of grace that Paul wants to present. And that's what's at stake uh, in these discussions. It's, it's a big discussion because uh, Paul has one side, but apparently there's a group that has another side. And now he goes to Jerusalem for everyone to discuss and decide. But remember, Paul has been living in the midst of seeing all these non-Jews being transformed in many ways. But most of the people in Jerusalem have not experienced that. If they've seen whatever they've seen of a Gentile world is very limited. Uh, most of it is not good. And the few good ones that they've seen, they all have become converts. They become proselytes. And we have a number of people actually in the book of Acts that are mentioned as proselytes early on and all throughout. So proselytism actually never stopped. For some people, that was the path. For some people, that was the option. And even when the decision is being made in Acts uh, 15 uh, about not burdening those who are turning from the Gentiles, you know, things like that, that actually doesn't stop proselytism. Proselytism actually continues on. And some people still choose that path, even though they have another option. And, and that's really what this discussion is about. Should we force them to go this way or should we give them another option? Something I do in my course is I lay out this idea of another option, and it has been there all along. And I've done this in some of my other courses as well, and I show people kind of trace it through that there always have been multiple paths upon which a, a non-Jew can embark if they're trying to connect with the God of Israel. You know, And, and that's what we're seeing uh, in this argument in chapter 15 of Acts. Uh, these precedents get brought up, uh, the connections of other non-Jews who have interacted with the God of Israel and God of Israel has accepted them, those precedents get brought up. And so Cornelius, of course, is an affront forefront of that. You know, 
the big argument is that, hey, look at look at these guys. Look what happened to them. We can't deny the fact that God has accepted them. Can't deny the fact that God has accepted them as they are without being circumcised, without anything going on. But if God accepted them, why should we try to impose things upon them? Let's just let them be as they are, because apparently that's good enough for God. So that's the big force of the argument. And the decisions that come out of that are really motivated by, by this uh, understanding. Israel Bible Center has several roundtable talks as well as a wide variety of courses you can take. If Paul's theology in particular is of interest to you and you would like to explore more about how Paul's writings talk about the togetherness of Jews and non-Jews. However, in our conversation today, when it comes to the decisions made at the Jerusalem Council— Well, it really is an astonishing moment in history. Here we have the leaders of this new movement, and they have to figure out some tough issues. So they look to what the Holy Spirit is doing, and they look through their scriptures to understand God's design. And in the end, they land with the following requirements for non-Jews. They need to abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, and from the meat from strangled animals, and sexual immorality. These seem like odd choices, but it is communicating not just what is expected of those who follow Jesus, but what is necessary to peacefully coexist with Jews. I asked Pinhas from his perspective, what kind of nuances are here in these requirements? I think a lot of people who study the context realize that the types of things that the apostles tell people to do, essentially, they don't make a lot of sense to us because everyone would say, well, why didn't they tell them, well, uh, you know, do not lie, do not steal, do not cheat, right. you know, things like that. Right. Right. Why didn't they go to the Ten Honor Commandments? your father and mother. <laughs> right. You know, these these kind of common ethical ways of life, which would not have been so so common to, let's say, to, to pagans per se. Uh, they're kind of taking those things for granted, uh, yet they're focusing on something else. And, and I actually believe that the context is really going back to the Torah. Jews, whenever faced with a decision that is practical, you know, how do we live this out? How do we how do we make this work? So I say, always look to precedents. And the and the precedents are right there in the Torah. And so the Torah contains a number of commandments that are given to non-Jews, by the way. They're given to the Gerim, to the to the sojourners, and they're called the laws of the sojourners. And if you look at the laws of the sojourners in Torah, you will see how much those precepts that are given to the sojourners actually overlap with the very things that the disciples tell them not to do. And, you know, things like, you know, not eating blood uh, or, or promiscuity and sexual immorality, things like that, uh, worshiping idols, those are straight out of the Torah commandments that are forbidden to anyone who sojourns with Israel. Again, sojourners were not forced into becoming Jews. They could live as non-Jews within Israel and have certain privileges. They wouldn't be completely included into every, every aspect of Israelite worship, but there are certain aspects that they had to maintain as being a part of society. 
kind of say cannot go against the grain. And so they did receive quite a few commandments. And those commandments might have been, you know, helpful to them if they were on their way, if they were considering becoming a part of Israel and blending their lives completely with the community of Israel. But if you read the the very things that they're told to do, they're amazingly similar to the commandments given to the Gerim, to the sojourners in Torah. You can almost hear maybe the way that they were framing or thinking about this. How do we allow non-Jews to worship with Jews? And they go, well, we've always let sojourners come and live alongside us. Let's just do that. Yeah, if they're not going to be converts, then how are we going to treat them? Basically, which category are we going to put them in? Because the question is, what do they have to do and what do they have to do? You know, this is a very practical question. Again, a very Jewish way of looking at things. You know, what are your obligations, first of all? If we're going to treat them, how are we going to keep them accountable? How are we going to treat them? Well, these are the minimal things that they're going to have to do. And these are the laws of the sojourners. Now, the laws of the sojourners were very important because, again, you can have this these outsiders who can technically undermine the very culture of Israel from the inside because they're allowed to come in, allowed to be inside, and so they can start subverting, so to say, the culture. And that's why the laws of the sojourners were made. Difference here is these people are actually not living within the Jewish community because, you know, Antioch may be a place like that, but as if we go into the city in Antioch, let's say, if we go to Derbe and Lystra and all these other places, you know, we go through the towns of Anatolia as Paul did, there were a lot of places over there where Jews were practically not a factor at all. And, and these people were now challenged with living these kinds of ways, actually in places where Jewish community was practically absent, uh, non-existent. That's a different challenge because it's a lot easier to work your way into a structure and a system that's there for you. And there's a support system, but it's much harder to do that when you're kind of on your own. And that's what I think where a lot of these communities got into trouble later on in history, as we read the development of these communities, we, we realized that they didn't quite hold on to uh, the very advice that they were given, uh, specifically things like idolatry and eating blood. That was, that was a big one. This is where people failed a lot. Uh, it comes up in Revelation. You know, those are, again, uh, very similar area, slightly different side of the Mediterranean, but it's right there. When you were putting together the course, uh, as you look at chapters 10 to 15, is there a story in these chapters or a moment that just astounds you for the magnitude of the shift and the change that it makes in this early church? To me, my favorite story um, out of that whole segment, let's say, if I was to pick a segment, to me, it's the story of Paul traveling into the synagogues of the Asia Minor when he goes in, in Acts chapter 13, and he goes into a synagogue and he proclaims the good news there to his own community, to his own uh, Jewish people. So this is, this is an Antioch synagogue, but not the same Antioch as where he came from. This is Pisidian Antioch. So Acts chapter 13 to me is, is this amazing text that was, as I was studying, personally kind of gave me so much to think about. Main reason is because I sat down and I just analyzed his sermon. I analyzed how he presented the, the good news to his own people in his own Jewish context, because here he is in the synagogue 
this is very different than speaking to a bunch of pagans in a town square. He's not on Mars Hill. Now he is right there in his own element. And what is he going to say? That's what I was curious about. And, and as I read his message, I just found it to be very interesting of the approach that he took to lead people to understand what it is that he found so important about Jesus, about Yeshua. Why did he call him a savior, for example? The words that he chose are very, very interesting to me and how he presented the Messiah and just the points that he stressed to me were very powerful. I, I love the language, basically, of how he presents that message. I, I later went and actually looked at all of the sermons. I actually traced all the sermons in, in the book of Acts that are spoken. Of course you to. did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to. I had to because I'm, I have to say, what is once, you know, so what are the elements that are present in every one of these messages, these good news messages from the apostle. This is the apostolic messages, and that's going to be Peter and Acts 2, and then Peter and Acts 5, preaching or speaking or testifying, however you want to say that, to, to a Jewish audience, essentially. And then, of course, in Acts 10, there's another version of that to, to Cornelius, but then Paul in Acts 13. And I look at all those sermons, and 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 I see that they have they all carry a very interesting similarity, the kinds of things that they stressed, but the language in which they present the good news and the language in which they present the Messiah is very different from like Pauline letters, for example, that I read all the time. And so to me, that was personally probably one of the most illuminating uh, studies that I did in Acts as I went through this material and the things that jumped out at me, you asked me, it's like, you know, it's like how they said, and I'm going to mention this, this verse right here, uh, where he says that everyone who believes, according to Paul, everyone who believes is, in a lot of English says freed, but it literally means justified from the things which the Torah could not justify people from. So as he describes Messiah and what Messiah really brought, what he says that he brought justification from the things from which you could not be justified according to the Torah. And a lot of people have actually no idea that there are things for which you cannot be forgiven in the Torah. There are things that have no redemption. There are no sacrifices for intentional sin, for example, in the Torah. And I know people don't think about it that way, but this is the point that Paul hammers in. He says the very things that the Torah had no provision for, the Messiah brings that. He brings that justification through the merit of his death, his work, what he does, his merit is overflows as a righteous person. His merit is overflows to us who are now benefiting from that. Very powerful theology, but it, it, you have to step out of the sort of say traditional way of looking at sin and, and looking at it perhaps from a Jewish perspective where there are some sins that have no forgiveness. They have no sacrifices for. I love it. And for all the other bits about that sermon, people can take your class because I think you yes. have a section on it on yeah. Acts 13. Well, that's great. Thank you for giving us a whirlwind tour of the Jewish church part three. It is such a great course with maps and just, I mean, not just that it's great because of maps, um, but it is an amazing look at this brand new movement that is starting. And when we read it slowly, 
we see that it's bumpy along the way, that they're having to figure out life and they're doing this brand new thing, which seems astonishing. And so it's fun to get your guided tour through that process. As I was putting this course, I was really hoping to capture the excitement of the moment because I really wanted for people uh, who are listening to the course to understand how exciting this was to the disciples in the first century, that this was something that God has never done before. The nations of the world always had the opportunity to turn towards Israel's God, but they never really materialized. And the prophets predicted that time. But these Jews that we read about in the book of Acts, they were so enthused about what was happening before their eyes because they've never seen pagans turn away from idolatry and turn towards worship of one God. To, to them, it was absolutely, they must have been walking on clouds every time they, they've seen this happen. And so to me, as I read, there's, there's a massive amount of excitement, Like, but I think a lot of people today lost that. They, they don't even appreciate it because, well, everyone they know in the world is not Jewish and they believe in Jesus, you know. And that's like a common thing. And 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 they all live in good lives and they all read their Bibles and they're they're good moral, you know, responsible people. But the truth is this has never happened before. The message of the God of Israel has never penetrated the non-Jewish community to that degree. And and what these disciples are so excited about is how people's lives are being transformed. They've never seen this, and they as witnesses are excited and Paul probably one of the most excited ones because he sees that as as the prophecies coming true and the the sign of the end sort of say and that's why a lot of the fervor in his uh, teaching he's so passionate about it you can hear the fervor in Pinchas's teachings too, right? And if you haven't already taken his course on the stories of the Jewish church, exploring the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, I highly recommend that you do. A link will be in the episode notes. If you love conversations like this, you should join us at IBC. You will have access to a wide variety of amazing courses that dig into details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>